Last week we read these verses at the back end of the book of John, John 20, verse 30 and 31. Tell us what John is trying to get at in this gospel that he wrote for us. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these, the ones that I have included in these 21 chapters that he has uh, spelled out for us, these I've written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, as the Hebrews would call him. He's this, not just the, the Messiah, he's the son of God. He's God himself. I've written all this stuff so that you can know that Jesus is our savior and our Lord, our God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So he writes this letter to people who don't know anything about Jesus. I wrote all this down so that you can know who he is, believe in him, and have life in his name. For those who have been long in the tooth in following Jesus, he says, hey, man, I wrote all this down so that you can continue believing and continue having life in his name. This is my mission as your pastor. You want to boil down what I'm doing up here? I'm up here yammering all this time so that you might believe in Jesus and have life in his name, full stop. That's it. It's our mission as disciples that we would, as Christ followers, believe in him and have life in his name. It's our mission as disciple makers that we would help others believe in him and have life in his name, whether they know him not or have known him for a long time. Everybody see how this kind of wraps up everything? John summarizes his book, but he summarizes Christianity for us as well. So go to that, back to the front. That's where we start when we start studying a book. Is everybody good with that? We're going to start in the front? Yeah. And so last week, uh, we, we popped open the first eight verses. And, and what John, actually, I read this this week. I thought this was interesting. Maybe John, uh, he wrote all of the rest of John, the story, the historical narrative that starts here in verse 19. All the telling of the story he got written. And, and, and this one scholar says, maybe he came back and he says, you know what? I got to pop something right here at the front. So that everybody knows the context of, of everything that comes after. And so he writes this prologue, maybe initially or however the Holy Spirit determined that he would do that. He writes this prologue, this, this theologically steeped first 18 verses where he asserts a carpenter from Nazareth in Israel is the son of God. He calls him the word, the very communication of God with all of his people who has eternally coexisted with God, the Father, and who is indeed God. That's verse one. Wow. Chew on that. He goes on and he says um, that he affirms the deity of this, this carpenter, this Jesus, by saying he was at the beginning when everything was created and nothing was created except that he created it. And then he says in verse four, we read these verses last week, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. You know, I've quoted that verse several times this past week, just that last little phrase. Let's all read it together. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I surprised you with that. You ready? Let's do it for real this time. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is our Jesus. He shines in the darkness, whether it's your personal darkness as you wrestle with depression and fears or whether it's our world's darkness, it's in your families. Jesus shines in the darkness and guess what? There might be moments of dismay and discouragement, days where you think, man, I can't see the light. But here's what we know. Jesus is victorious. He conquers and has conquered because of the cross and his resurrection. He is uh, over 
the disappointments, the ramifications that come up in a broken, sinful world. He wins, and we share in his victory if we believe in him and choose life in his name. Just be encouraged by that. Whether you're stuck in traffic, <laughs> in the darkness of that quagmire, whether you're you know, struggling with a relationship, whether you're wrestling with doubt, just remember, darkness comes, but Jesus and his light are never overcome. So we pick up today in verse nine. Everybody with me? I read this verse to you last week, but I'm gonna explain it a little bit further today. It says, referring again to Jesus being this life and this light, it says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is John's uh, Christmas verse. He doesn't talk about Christmas anywhere in his gospel. Um, Matthew and Luke spend most of their front, uh, fronts of their books talking about the Christmas story. Uh, and so John just says, hey, here's Christmas. The light came into the world. Jesus was born. The incarnation occurred. God became man. He calls him the true light. Now, this isn't like true false. This is like truest. Uh, he understands that in the culture that he's writing to, and certainly in our culture, there's all kinds of truths out there, lights that shine. Some of them are okay. Like, I think it's good for us to help our fellow man. In fact, Jesus would teach us to do that. I think it's good for us um, to, to you know, seek to advance ourselves and to strive to become the very best versions of ourselves. There's lots of lights out there, but Jesus, John says, is the truest light. He's the dog star. Anybody know what the dog star is? The Greeks called it Sirius. It's not XM. Uh, but it means it, it, it's the brightest star in the sky. That's what Jesus is. He's the brightest star in our sky. He's meant to be ultimate. There can be other pursuits, but he must be chief among them. The truest light, which gives light to everyone. How about that? That's pretty cool, right? How many people get the light? All of them. The nastiest of the nastiest. The least deserving of the least deserving. By the way, that's us. Just in case you're like, oh, even them? No, even us. <laughs> he came first to Israel, which was what our scriptures tell us had to happen. That the Messiah would come from the seed of Abraham and from the lineage of Abraham and, and come to Israel. But he, he didn't keep it in Israel. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. He expanded his light, shone his light on everyone. Jesus came into the world. What he goes into next is uh, some puzzling stuff. Has always been for me as I've preached the gospel for 30 years as a pastor in various capacities. This light, this Jesus, this son of God comes to the world and he shines on all people, giving everyone an opportunity to look to him and find meaning in life in him and, and to follow him. But are you alarmed at the number of people who reject Jesus? Just say no thanks. The world chooses to stay in the dark. Why is this the case? Well, people have a hard time recognizing Jesus. Even back then, John, as he speaks of the days that he walked with Jesus here on the earth, he says as much when he says this, he was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him, back to that creator part, yet the world did not know him. Now, no kind of carries a couple of um, meanings. No means, um, uh, you know, recognize, but no also means relate to. So it wasn't that the, the Jews were like um, unaware. I mean, the, the Bible tells us and records for us over and over again how Jesus uh, was followed by these huge throngs, many of them seeking miracles you know, from him and, and wanting to see the stuff that he was able to do and hear the things that he taught. But so many of them 
having experienced all that, just said, oh, that was cool. And walked away from the Son of God and never did anything beyond. Just kind of, they didn't recognize who he really was and what he was really about. My grandmother died at the age of 104 a couple years ago. Um, and so she had some cool stories. Now, one of them, she told me, I said, uh, you know, tell me about growing up. And she grew up in Canada and she actually grew up, she was born in, uh, I'm going to get this wrong probably, but like 1913 or 14. And so um, uh, the, the first world war was going on. How about that? And uh, her father uh, served in the Canadian uh, armed forces, went to Europe and uh, fought in the first world war. Uh, shortly after she was born, she uh, grew up four or five years of her life without knowing her own father. She tells this story. She says, uh, the first time I saw my dad was in an army parade. The troops had come home and they were walking triumphantly down through uh, the city streets uh, where his battalion had been stationed. And she was sitting on her mother's shoulders. And uh, her mom had to point out the dude that was her dad. There he is, honey. And that was the first time my Nana waved to her father. Seen his picture on the, on the bureau, on the dresser, but had never seen him face to face. Couldn't have picked him out of a crowd probably. It's the same thing that happened in the time of Jesus. It's the same thing that happens today. Jesus has walked among us. His testimony, is, his record is ours to read. And yet so many people, they just don't recognize him. In his day, they, they attributed his story to other things. He, he was a, um, a tool of the devil, the Pharisee says. He got his powers from the demons. Um, in our day, um, we see uh, the grace of God in Christ, and we see his work in our midst, and we attribute it to anything but him. Coincidence, try to explain it away scientifically, right? But we're just conditioned not to recognize Jesus. Paul makes this clear for us as to why this happens in his letter to the Corinthians. His second letter, chapter four, verses three and four says this. He's talking about his gospel that he's been you know, eager to preach to them and to all those that he's you know, had a contact with. And he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Read, if people don't accept Jesus and his truth, there's a consequence. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, even if it's hidden, even if you don't recognize Jesus, it's veiled to those who are perishing. It goes on and he says this, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hebrews goes on to talk about this veil, you know, that the veil has to be lifted, spiritually speaking, before we could see Christ, I'm, I'm not making a statement on masks here, but uh, I have had, had some fun with these things. Has anybody seen this mask usage in some of the places that you go? The, the chin strap? Thanks for protecting your neck. I appreciate that. Uh, I saw my, my buddy Steve Stow was, was hanging out with us the other day, and he, he, he wore his mask like this and said, Yamoka. It's, uh, it's, you're ready for a temple if you want to. What was just described for us by Paul is different use of a mask. Spiritually speaking, because of the sin, I gotta back up from the edge here. <laughs> because of the sin that we are born into in Adam, uh, because of the ruler 
uh, that God has allowed to preside over the, the world that we live in. Um, we are spiritually blind. Ephesians says that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead people can't see. This is still the case today. We can be looking right at Jesus and just miss him. Anybody really good at that? Where are my keys? And your wife comes up to you and you're like, honey, they're right here. Like within arm's reach. Settle down, cowboy, right? We have that kind of angsty pursuit. We want meaning and truth in life. What's going on? What's this all about? And we drive by churches and attend those services and hear the truth spoken to us and we go right past it. There's this one uh, golf hole at the golf course that I frequent and uh, we play at the same time pretty much every day and the sun's coming up in the, where's the sun come up? East, that's right, yeah. And so this hole must be facing east because when you tee off, you just tee off and your head comes up and it is, you can't see a thing. You gotta have your buddies stand off in the shadows of the trees so that they can even, you know, and, and there's been more than one time as I'm walking down where I hope my ball was that I'm just kind of, because I didn't see it, I just kind of look around and one of my friends will be like, it's right there. I'm almost standing on it. <laughs> and so it is in this world that we live in. Jesus is right there and people see him not. They can't recognize him. That's why we want to be, uh, as, as a church, as best prepared to help people recognize him as possible. Let me plug this for you. On February 13th, we're going to have a, a foundation seminar here on a Saturday morning. You can hang out in our room or you can join us online. Uh, it's going to be with a, a, a great young pastor. I think he's from California, but he's going to basically help us. In, it's the title of it is Engaging a Skeptical Culture, helping us understand how we can help people see Jesus. I hope you'll uh, take the time to join us. On that day, it's going to be a great day. But people, they don't just have a problem recognizing Jesus. Uh, John goes on here in verse 11 and tells us that people are conditioned not just to not see him, but they're conditioned to outright reject him. Look what it says in verse 11. It says he came to his own and his people did not what? People said no thanks. When it says he came to his own, he's not just talking about uh, humanity. Certainly, that's true. He came to humanity as the incarnation tells us that, but he, he came to his own uh, people, his, the descendants of Abraham. He came to Israel, just like the scriptures of the Old Testament uh, said that he would. He, he was their Messiah first. He came to Israel. He never left the country. He walked around it a bunch, but he never left the nation of Israel. He came to his own, and his, his own people did not receive him. He was like this bright light. Anybody ever, here comes the pillow. Anybody ever been uh, sound asleep? And uh, whether someone doesn't know that you're in that room sleeping or, or you're, you know, your spouse or your parents uh, want to wake you up, uh, then their first move in waking you up is to flip the lights on, right? So you're laying there like this and all of a sudden blinding lights, right? And it's piercing through your closed eyelids and you're like, oh, I don't want to wake up. And so what do you do? What do you do with your pillow? It's going over here. Ah! Sometimes I use two or three. Because then it drowns out all the sound of them. Come on, you got to get up. Can't hear you. Can't see you. Sleeping. Go away. How's my hair? Thank you. 
That's kind of how John puts it here. It's, it's a rather mild depiction of what actually happened. Jesus came to his own, and his, his own people did not receive him. He makes it sound like they just put the pillow over their head. That's not what happened. Does everybody remember what happened? Their reaction to Jesus, their Messiah, the one true God, was visceral. Multiple times in the story of Jesus, fellow Jews tried to kill him, put their hands on him, throw rocks at him until he was dead. Jesus was constantly evading this murderous crowd. And eventually, he walked in Jerusalem. The beginning of what we know to be Holy Week at a Passover around his 33rd year of life. And he surrendered himself to the hands of his countrymen who chose a murderous thief as a substitute for the Messiah who was given for their sake. They watched as uh, a foreign nation nailed him to a cross of crucifixion, mocked him as he died. And we're like, oh, those horrible Jews. Hey, slow down. We were all complicit in that act. Every one of us rebellious against the God who created us. Not just not recognize him, but loving the dark so much that we would prefer it over the light that Jesus brings. Well, a few chapters from now, Jesus is going to hang out with this guy, Nicodemus. We'll talk about it more when we get there. But right after he says that familiar phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's John 3, 16. In John 3, 19, he says this, and this is the judgment. <laughs> the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus goes on in his teaching and teaches this in lots of different ways. One of the most obvious is in this parable in, in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus talks about a, a, a master who owns a vineyard. He employs some farmers to basically take care of this, this crop, his grapes, uh, for him. And uh, Jesus goes on to tell the story that, um, you know, as this kind of removed master, he sends these servants to come and give messages on his behalf. But these farmers who were in charge of his vineyard just kept persecuting those servants and eventually, uh, you know, stoning them and killing them over and over and over again. And then the master says, well, I'll send my son. Certainly, they will not treat my son in the same way. And if you know the parable, it's exactly what they did. And then Jesus asked the question, how will a master treat those who have done this to his son? If you're not picking up what Jesus was putting down there, he's basically going through the story of Israel's history. He's saying over and over and over again, I sent you servants, prophets, to tell you what's up to set you straight, to, to head you back in my direction. And over and over again, you persecuted them and you killed many of them. And then, at my appointed time, I sent you my son, Jesus, telling this story, predicting his own death. He says, I sent you my son and you did the same to him. Has anybody ever read the Bible and been like, oh, bummer. Like, that's a bummer story. It just puts on display the wickedness of man's hearts. It puts on display our, our rebellion and our unwillingness to to follow the God who made us. Invariably in those situations, Jesus gets around to the good news. Who's, who's grateful for the good news? Yeah. At the end of this parable, Jesus asks him, he says, hey guys, 
And here's what I'm thinking happens. He's talking about this, and, and some of his followers, his closer ends, are like, oh, man, Jesus is the son in this story. Uh, he's saying it one more time. He's saying he's going to die. We don't want him to die. And so for them, he says, hey, don't forget what it says in Psalm 118. It says that the stone that the builders rejected, rejected has now become the cornerstone. He said, this is the Lord's doing. It's God's plan. And it is wonderful to see. What is he saying at the end of this parable? Same thing he's saying in, through John in John chapter 1. He's saying, for sure, people have a hard time recognizing me. Yes, people are spiritually wild, wired to reject me, but by my grace... I will persist and people will still have the opportunity to be set free. He says it this way in, in John chapter one, he's basically telling us good news. People can still receive Jesus. Yeah, Jesus came to his own world, the world he created, no one recognized him. Jesus came to his own people and they didn't just um, you know, not receive him, they killed him. But here's the good news. People can still receive Jesus. It says in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. I gotta pause here for a second. John does this interesting uh, word gymnastics thing when he talks about belief. The, the word for belief is pistuo. Everybody say pistuo. But he takes that word belief and he adds this preposition to it, pistuo hase. Hase is the preposition into. And so he basically takes belief in Jesus and he takes it from just us kind of, you know, mentally, intellectually assenting to the person of Christ and to the things that he is. And he says, it's not enough. You can't just know about Jesus. You've got to personally know Jesus and then you've got to personally act on what you know about Jesus. That's what that means. Believe into. It's the difference between you coming up to the chair you're sitting in today and saying, I bet you that chair could hold me and then you sitting down. When you sat down, that's pistuo ace. You believed yourself into that chair. And so it is with Christ. I'm saying this for those of you who are kind of good churchgoers, grew up Christian. My parents are, I'll talk about them in a second. I must be Christian, I'm an American. I got a flag, got a Bible. Hey, look, look at me. Christians are those who have believed into Jesus. Not just heard about, not just been around. They're the ones who have received him and believed into his name. They're the ones who have been given the right to become children of God. The Bible talks about this all over the place. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God if we have faith in Jesus Christ. This happens by faith. It, verse 13 says, you were not, uh, you, you, you who were born, and at the end of the verse it says, of God, but he fits this little thing in the middle. He says, you were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If, if you're a, a new creation in Christ, you've been born again, as he tells Nicodemus later, um, in God, by God, by the hand of God, you've been given new life. You are born of God, not of blood. That talks about heritage. The Jews believed, if I'm Jewish, I'm in. I got Abraham's blood, I'm in. And John says, nope. It's not about your heritage. It's not about your parents. Your parents can't be Christian for you. Or you aren't a Christian simply because you have a Christian lineage. 
It's not by blood. It's not by the will of, the will of the flesh. This is so great. The will of the flesh is basically, flesh is talking about lots of things, the Greek word sarks, but it, it basically leans into the things that we feel. We act on the things that we feel. We act in our flesh, right? And I love talking to people about this when I share the gospel with them. Hey, you know you need Jesus and it's him alone that you need in order to be connected to God and have life you know, anew? And they say, no, I don't believe in that. Oh, okay. What do you believe in? Well, you know, I'm kind of making up my own thing. You know, as, as long as I'm better than my neighbor, as long as I'm, you know, not beating my kids every day, every day, as long, you know, as, and, 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 you know, as long as, long as I'm, and they kind of craft this whole salvation plan from how they feel. This is how I feel it should work with God. And so this is what I'm banking on. These are the same kind of people who would try to go buy their groceries at Publix with rocks. I got a big bag of rocks here. Dug them out of my yard. You know how I feel? I feel like these should be equivalent to dollars. And so I'm going to give you some of my rocks, and you're going to give me my groceries. That's how I feel. And all of us look at that person, and we call the proper authorities and have them Baker acted. That's just crazy, right? Because you can't pay for stuff with rocks. Look at me. Listen to me if you're online. If you've kind of been orbiting the Jesus thing, here's the deal. You can't make up how salvation works. It's been clearly delineated for you in his word. It is by Christ alone, through faith alone, because of grace alone. That's it. No rocks. No other religions. It's him. And that's it. It's not by your blood. It's not by the will of your flesh. It's not by the will of man. He goes into this later through the writings of Paul. He says, listen, you can't work your way. That's what the will of the man is. Ergos, I'm going to work. I'm going to work my way into, into the righteousness of God. Many in the Jewish faith had, had believed this. They believed that the law was kind of this you know, bar to jump over. And if I can just attain the righteousness of the law, I'll be fitting and, and you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, have God because of what I've done. Isn't that kind of like having a spiritual bright futures? Some of you guys are recently graduated from high school, going to college. Bright futures is the college scholarship system here in Florida. And you've got to meet certain criteria to be able to qualify for certain levels of college funding. You know, if you get this test score, if you get these grades, if you're involved in enough community service, go work. You know what we'll give you? Money. I was grateful for it. But that's not how... Spiritual things work. There's no bright futures with God. By grace we are saved through faith and not by our works. Now why, let me just close with these next few verses. Why is receiving Jesus such a big deal? Well, the next verse tells us, it tells us that Jesus is the, and I'd say only agent of God's grace and truth available to us. In life, look what it says the incarnation again, more Christmas. And the Word became flesh. Means God wrapped himself in skin. Uh, He could have said God came in human form, he could have said God came in body, but he used that word flesh again. Meaning that, that Jesus was susceptible to all the same temptations, all the same feelings and doubts that you and I are susceptible to. He came in flesh form and he dwelt. This is the Greek word for uh pitched a tent. It's actually tabernacled. He dwelt among us. Be like if I came to your house, Bernie, and I pitched a tent in your backyard and just hung out. He came and he dwelt among us. 
Formerly, the tent that he used to inhabit in the Old Testament faith was the, the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. That was where the presence of God resided. But now, in Jesus, God has revealed himself in human form. He's tabernacled in a human body. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Ever wondered why God chose to do it this way? Anybody ask those questions? Could have done it any way he wanted. Why did, why did, why did he do it this way? Why did he, in the form of his son, become us? Well, there's reams of paper written by tons of theologians on this subject. Let me give you three things this morning. I think the, the first reason that he became like us is because he wanted to affirm his love for us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right? That's the incarnation. His crucifixion, God demonstrates his love for us and that why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of these things happen because God took on human form. He affirms his love for us by becoming like us. He certainly assures us that he can identify us or identify with us, I'm sorry, by dwelling amongst us. He experienced all the same frailties, all the same temptations, and he did it without sin. So he can relate when we have problems What a blessing it is to be able to go to him. Hebrews tells us this, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is in every respect, someone who has been tempted as we are and yet has not sinned. So we have the affirmation of God's love. We have the identification that he makes with us as he becomes one of us. This is a new one that I I read this week. God became man so that man could participate in the atoning of his sins. Now we know, everybody stay with me. We know that none of us can atone for our sins. Is that true? God has to do it for us. But who is guilty of sin? God? No, we are. Is Is everybody right with that? Okay. So wouldn't it make sense that man would be involved in his own atonement? It's, it's basically the picture of the Old Testament, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the Holy of the Holies and he would sacrifice a goat called the scapegoat. And that goat would be basically the, 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 the object of God's wrath for all the sins of Israel. But a man had to stand there next to him, put his hand on the goat's uh, head as he uh, sacrifices him to God. Man was involved in the atonement of man's sins. Are you with me? So doesn't it make sense that God would atone, certainly do what we could never do for ourselves, but would atone for man by becoming a man and atoning for us himself. My son, uh, Cooper, goes to USF. He, um, uh, last September, got a letter from USF, and I apparently didn't really look at it that uh, you know, closely. Uh, I found it in a stack of papers on Saturday. It's a check for almost $1,100. Uh, there was a refund that came uh, for, for Cooper's, uh, you know, uh, schooling, and uh, they had sent him this check, and he just kind of looked at it and thought it was nothing and just threw it in a stack of papers. And so $1,100 has been sitting in my house uh, for four months now. Does anybody know how long the shelf life of a check is? 90 days. I don't know what it is at your place, but it's 90 days. We are past the 90 days. So Cooper came home from work, and I said, hey, bro, <laughs> check. Uh, Anybody know who pays for Cooper's school? Anybody want to guess? Who's got two thumbs and pays for his son's college? This guy. So that's my money, right? But here's the deal. I can't go up to the registrar in USF and say, give me my money. Check's in Cooper's name. Coop's got to go. 
even though I paid the money. Are you with me? So we don't have to go. Is anybody grateful that we don't have to go through the wrath that is rightfully ours for our sin? Is anybody grateful for that? But does everybody understand why God came as one of us and went through the wrath for our sins? It's because it's the price that only he could pay, but it wasn't him that had done the sin and it was mankind. Of course he would come as a man and pay for man's sin. The last part of that verse is where I want to finish. He says that Jesus, the, the word who became flesh, uh, dwelt among us. It says there at the end of verse 14, and we've seen the glory, John reporting his, his own testimony here. I've seen the glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth come from Jesus. He's full of both, has plenty for all of us. And our faith taps into that stream. When we put our faith in Jesus, grace and truth through him to us are ours. At salvation, in sanctification, grace and truth, grace and truth. It's like all of you who came in this morning, who've come here before, into this room or our room next door, you probably tapped into Baylife's Wi-Fi. Is anybody using Baylife's Wi-Fi right now? It's nice. If you don't, we have it. If you want to use it, you can. Um, But we all understand this. Our phones end up in places, and as soon as we get in, they just automatically pick up our home's Wi-Fi, our work's Wi-Fi. It's just instantaneous like that, right? And what that Wi-Fi does is it gives us, uh, you know, access to things we wouldn't otherwise have. Last night, the Wi-Fi went out of my house for like half an hour, right? (laughs) The end has come. (laughs) What do we do now? No cable, no internet. Yeah. But then it comes back on, you're like, ah. I want you to know, if you're walking in faith, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have tapped into the unending, never quenching grace and truth that is in him. You are never out of range. You never fall off. It is always with you. Look what it says in verse 16. It says in verse 16 that from the fullness we have received, grace upon grace. It's actually translated a little funny in our Bibles. It's actually um, uh, charis uh, anti-keratos, which is grace against or grace instead of grace. And it's this picture of this. As soon as the grace runs out in this one situation, as soon as you think, man, I've exhausted grace in my life, there's no more grace, guess what's coming? More grace. The void never happens. The grace is always there. His grace is always sufficient. It's never ending for whatever we face in life. Oh, that we would live in this grace. I didn't know how to end this service today. I was in my office praying and saying, God, how do you want me to end? I'll end this way. Here's the deal. The true light has come into the world. His name is Jesus. There's too many people in the world who don't recognize him, who continue to reject him. If you're one of them, man, I would love to today talk to you about who he really is so that you could take the veil off and you can see him and understand him and receive him. I know you as disciples, many of you who follow Jesus, you know people that that describes them. And so you and I get to be lights with the light. We get to carry this light who is Jesus into the lives of those. Go this week as disciples and make disciples wherever God gives you the opportunity to. But remember this, be encouraged by this. I know it's been a crazy season. I know there's all kinds of stuff going on in our world, pandemically, that's a word, politically, 
There's fear. There's anger. I see it in your posts. Settle down, by the way. Think before you click send. Can you do that for me? We're Christians first. And then some political parties way down the line after that. Is everybody with me? But in the midst of anything that comes in life, in the 2,000 years since Jesus came, was incarnated in flesh, lived a perfect life, died and rose again, promised to return for us. And in all of those years, his grace and truth have never been shut off. It's grace instead of grace. Grace upon grace. His grace and his truth are always enough. Let's live with him, believing and having life in his name. That's my prayer for us. Will you stand with me as we pray? Lord, thanks for the truth. Thanks for your amazing grace. I think that's what my sister's playing. Uh, does everybody know who, everybody, I'm, I'm going to pray in a second, but does everybody know who wrote Amazing Grace? A guy named John Newton. If you read his biography, he was a mess. Given over to the sins of the world that he grew up in. Yeah, he was, he was a sailor. He got so drunk one night, he fell off the boat that he was employed to serve, and, and they had to use a harpoon to lance him and pull him back on the boat. He had the scars from that life-saving. He was angry against God, had a rough life, and then eventually someone told him about Jesus and he put his faith in Jesus. And this wretched, worst of sinners wrote the words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see.